this is such a waste of time. You mean the subject of the conversation? The subject of the conversation is so shallow and so banal. It's like, I don't (laughs) want to be part of this. You know, I was raised in New England. We don't do this very well. (laughs) Exactly. We are energetic. Music is playing. Energetic music. We're excited. We're excited. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi there. All right. So we are back after a long time. This is the Pop Culture Salvage Expeditions. And for those of you that may have forgotten in our long absence what we do here at the Pop Culture Salvage Expeditions, Pat, what do we do here? We experience pop culture as a way of translating it for activists and seeing how we can use better practices in our work. So how can we become more popular in what we do? Yeah, because sometimes activists get caught up in their own bubble. They get caught up in their own language. They kind of sequester themselves. They go see poetry readings about mountaintop removal. And that's great. I like poetry readings about mountaintop removal. No, you don't. I know. But the problem is, if we really want to affect power and we want to bring about change, we've got to be able to speak the language of everyday people. And pop culture is one of the ways that we can learn how to do that. So we don't mean critically acclaimed pop culture. We don't mean, you know, the stuff that you think is cool. It's all the things that we don't think are cool or don't want to do. <laughs> well, we kind of think they're cool. At least part of us does. Yeah. Well, but today we did brunch and I was against it. But we'll get into that. So we've been away for a little bit. Uh, We've been working on other things, but we're glad to be back. And we have a bunch of uh, ideas for future pop culture salvage expeditions. Today should be the first of a a new string of these that come out. If you have ideas of things that we should do, things that you think are popular that might be some lessons that we could extract from, please get in touch. We're we're (laughs) open to ideas right now, especially right now. And today we have a special guest. Oh, yes. Very special. That special guest is Rita Lambert. Hello there. That's my mom. Oh. Do I sound like a mother? <laughs> yeah. yeah you do. Okay. Kind of. Yeah. You sound like a woman. I sound like, like a woman, also a mother. Yeah. <laughs> and so we were thinking, like, here's Steve's mom has come all the way from the other coast. And what do you do on a Sunday when your mom comes to town? Uh, leave her at home. Do whatever you want. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not if you're a good son. <laughs> Give her the keys to the place. Tell her to take care of herself. <laughs> That could happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you take her to brunch. And so that's what we did today. We went to a local spot, local being New York City, called Jane yeah, Restaurant, right. which is not on Jane Street. It's on Houston Street, but it's actually known for its brunches. And I've walked by there many a time to see this huge line outside on a Saturday and Sunday. And so when we thought about doing brunch, we're like, okay, where are we going to go? We're going to go to someplace like that. Steve also talked about having the sex in the city experience. Yes. You know, the you, sex in the city experience? Yeah. I've not, I've not really watched the show much, but oh, apparently the, they all go to brunch. They go to, I always go to brunch. And then you go yes. to brunch, and then you talk about your loves, and you talk about the gossip. And, you know, you basically catch up on the week. It's like it's, a, it's an institution. And it's an institution that I think— you know, started out as primarily sort of an urban institution and maybe even a New York institution, mm-hmm. but it has been spread uh, across the United States, urban, suburban. I'm not sure, you know, rural, they probably don't call it brunch, but they right. still, people hang out on a Sunday or a Saturday at the local diner and they catch up on the week. I love brunch, actually. I do brunch 
most weeks. I do it in my house. I love the concept of brunch. I'm do you always have friends over. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do brunch by yourself. I don't know. <laughs> so in my house, instead of Sunday dinners, we do brunches. Mm, makes sense. Well, it saves from people having to drive a distance, right? And then go home late after dinner. With rain falling down in December and, you know, it's just a little safer on the road. It's also, I think, a family thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. we used to do it as a family and it was saved mom and dad from fixing breakfast. Oh, yeah. And it also obviated church. Oh, yes. <laughs> so yeah, I am playing hooky from church right now. We had to take the long way around to make it to my office to miss church, just so. Well, so that people thought... wouldn't see him coming in and out, not being in church. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I always thought of brunch as like what 20-something-year-old kind of young white ladies did, and they'd get drunk with their friends. It was like an excuse to get drunk. Uh, and then um, hang out and gossip and stuff. And this is why I was against it. I was like, we got to do stuff that's popular in a much bigger you know, section of the population. And then I remembered being in San Francisco and that the taquerias all served Sunday menudo. 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 Yeah. And, if you, and I would go on a Sunday and there'd be whole families eating big, long tables. I was like, all right, all right. So this isn't all just... 20-something white ladies. Mm-hmm. Right. No, it's, it's, it's... Everyone does brunch. Yeah, everyone does brunch. Hi, how's it going? I have a reservation for Steve Lambert. Hello, Pat. Hi, Rita. I've seen you. Now, how we usually do this sort of methodologically is for the first 10 minutes or so, we just kind of open our eyes as anthropologists of the present and of our own culture and just, what did we see? Picking up on Steve's point, I think at Jane Restaurant, what I noticed was that even though the staff was very diverse, the patronage was not. Yeah. So West Village, right, you're not going to get the diversity. If we went to a brunch place up in Harlem, yeah. right, if we went to different communities in Brooklyn, it, it would look very different than it did at Jane Restaurant. And I think that's key because it's local. Right. Right. You know, people come down from Harlem later in the afternoon to walk around, and then you'll probably see a more diverse crowd in a restaurant. But right now, it's just drawing from who's actually living in the West Village, a lot of students, NYU students, and so Mm -hmm. on. Just as if we were in Harlem, it would be primarily African-American. And so the locality is, is key. I was more interested or struck by the women that were in the group. There were a lot of young women Mm -hmm. with really tight pants on, leather, uh, high boots. Everybody had to have spike heels. For me, it was like, hey, wait a minute. You just walked several blocks in your high heels. What's going on? Welcome to New York. Right. I mean, it's kind of like, what? Why? Who are you trying to impress? This isn't – you're not in a ballroom. That's part of it, right? That's – Seen and be seen? Yeah, definitely. Well, especially among your friends, right? Yeah. Well, because you'd think it wouldn't be like that. You'd think you'd be rolling out of bed in your pajamas, right? And just kind of hanging out. But no, it's you dress up. Right. It's not Thanksgiving meal where you show up in your sweats. You're presenting yourself. You show up in sweats to Thanksgiving? Some people do. I I don't have sweats. No. (laughs) 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 But it is, right? It is seen see and be seen. And that's the whole point. You're going out. It's an event. It is something to do. And I think the comparison to church, right, is interesting because it is that 
communal aspect of brunch that mm-hmm. makes it important and popular mm-hmm. uh, with people. And the communal is a little different because we're not praying together, but we are all in the same space. We're all experiencing the same atmosphere. We're seeing each other, right? We're overhearing some of the conversations of the tables closest to us. So you do have that connection. So that matters. And everyone knows that they're going to be seen when you go out to a restaurant. And by the people at your table, right? There weren't people sitting alone. And there were mostly tables of four or mm-hmm. more, mm-hmm. right? So it wasn't like, let's, as a couple, go have brunch. You meet other people, and mm-hmm. that's the communal yeah. thing you're talking mm-hmm. about. And I think the same thing in church. When you were saying that, I had visions of us being in church. We don't really know everybody in that building. We just know the people in our bench. Mm-hmm. And we commune with those people in our bench. And uh, from the Catholic, you know, where you have communion, Basically, you're at breakfast, you're eating Mm -hmm. together. So that's your communal thing in that whole restaurant. You're nourishing one another at that table with your speech, with your uh, whatever you're communing, and you're nourishing each other with this food as well. And that's what church does. And for some people, this uh, liturgy has been transformed to the restaurant. Mm, So now... We don't need to go to that and sit in a pew and be entertained. Entertained. Yeah. Well, you know, when you think about it, it's a stage. It is a stage. Yeah. There's a stage and there's the audience. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. It's such a terrible show, though. (laughs) Well, that's why a lot of people have switched. (laughs) I think, think really, they're done with it. Mm -hmm. We don't need that anymore. What I need is this more intimate Mm. commune mm. where we're we are really nourishing each other spiritually as well as emotionally and socially yeah. should we mention now yeah my mom has a master's degree in theology and was a dominican nun is that, that that's that's right those are qualifications are there anything to else? speak in this way well, yes yes <laughs> and was married to a monk yeah yes um, yeah. so you figure that how steve came about yeah, that's a whole other podcast. And you have to know which Steve. <laughs> I love this idea of the secular liturgy because I think that's absolutely right. And what does liturgy mean? Liturgy. 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 Yeah, what is that? I know how to spell it, but I just don't really know what it means. It's sort of a ritual that people go through and they do it uh, regularly. Uh, so when you go to church, generally that's a liturgy, and it has certain steps people go through. They may sing together, stand together, listen together. It's all this that happens as a group. That's uh-huh. this this format for a liturgy. So that actually seems like a really good place to move into what can we learn from in going to brunch that we can apply to our activist work and to being better, more creative activists. There's two big areas I see. One is this idea of secular liturgy, which is what are the sorts of rituals that we actually can bring into our sorts of work that are secular, that are not religious. The second one, you know, this is something that we we talked about and we can bring about more, is that part of that liturgy is about time. And it's about the expanse of time we have in sitting down and eating together. So maybe we can we can take either of those and start 
moving with them? I'll start with time because that's really what gets me most crazed about activist culture. And I'll use the activist conference as an example. Ah. (laughs) Where time is so tight and oppressive and we don't allow ourselves enough time to sit with ideas to think through it and to build relationships together and everything has to be packed one on top of the other you know you go from a workshop you have a five minute break before the next workshop and there isn't this value of even Once you get information, oh, people need time to sit with information. They need time to take it in and to think about it and to have informal conversations that might lead to a place that we don't know where it might lead to. So I love the idea of just experiencing brunch to have a different conceptualization of what time could be. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you all noticed, but we were there for two hours And there were people around us that had gotten there before us and were not getting up as we got up. And the waiter didn't try to rush us out. Nobody dropped a bill on us. It was expected that we were going to take a long period of time. That's what makes brunch different than, say, you know, the 20-minute coffee. Yeah, it's not because of the meal. It's because of the social part of it, right? And if you're going to brunch, it's implied that you're sitting back in your chair, you're sipping on a drink, you're nibbling at this or that or trading plates. And then, you know, there's a few rounds of coffee, maybe a few rounds of drinks, depending on who you are. And there's a social part of it. If they rushed us out, people wouldn't go there for brunch. Yeah. So how do we build some of that back into our activist culture so we're not rushing and so on and so forth? I think the value of time is paramount in every relationship. And as you were talking, I was thinking about a marriage. If you're rushing from one thing to the other and time is cutting you off, I have to get to work, I have to fix dinner, I have to take care of the kids, I'm going to the soccer game or whatever, you really don't have time to build that communication in that relationship. And as activists, if you don't have a relationship, there's no creativity. Mm-hmm. There's no ro- room for anything to bubble up that's new. Mm-hmm. You're just controlled by the clock. We used to joke um, when our, my kids were smaller, we didn't have quality time with them. We had quantity time. <laughs> <laughs> we, we wouldn't take them to soccer games. We wouldn't take them to extracurricular you know, mathematics classes. We just spent a lot of time hanging out. So now I feel good about my laziness, <laughs> my child-rearing habits. Well, also you have the pressure, right? Especially if you're doing activism for as your job, inherent in that you usually have to justify your time, right? So people feel the pressure to go to a conference, even as I put down conferences. And if your supervisor were to see, oh, downtime, you have four hours of unstructured time. I don't know how many people would get permission in order to go to that. So I think it's something that we have to definitely be more conscious of around both elevating the value of time in different ways, but also recognizing that we're working and living in structures that are putting pressure on us to constantly justify and have our time accounted for. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think about maybe a different metrics for thinking about our interactions. Um, things like 
leafleting or pamphleting or canvassing, we often think of success in terms of like how many pieces of literature we've handed out or how many doors we've knocked on. And instead to think about it, not in terms of how many, but how long. How long did we have a conversation with someone? How deep was that conversation? Yeah, what was the quality of it? That made me smile as you were saying that because I recalled being a canvasser and I would get my quota as quickly as possible. And then the best part of my day was just having those long conversations with people where I didn't have to worry about raising money and I could just talk to them and hear about who they were and learn from them and learn about what their interests are and how they saw the world. And those were the best parts for me for understanding how to do my work. I've found in those kinds of conversations is when someone who you know sort of presents as a supporter of whatever you're talking about, then their doubts start to come out, right? Because they feel comfortable with you. It takes a longer period of time, like sitting around a table at brunch where after 30 minutes, someone says, you know, now that we've got some trust between us, I've always wondered about this or... What, what do you do about this thing? Or And without the trust, asking that question is controversial. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And when you have the trust, then people can ask questions that, when answered, makes them a real supporter. Right? Right. Exactly. And it's right because we're also doing most of our work over the weightier issues. Right. And I would canvas around uh, nuclear proliferation. Right. right? And that's a, so when you're tied by time, you go for the scare, right? You go for the, <laughs> right, for the eats because you mm-hmm, need to mm-hmm. have quick conversations in order to get, you know, a yes or no, get an answer, get a donation and move on. But these are two weighty issues to just leave it at that and to not let people sit with the doubt of, you know, does this really make a difference? Does this, right. what, will this really change things? Right. So getting to the core of what people are sitting in, in terms of doubt and fear and hope and just possibilities, you need to have more conversation time for that. Yeah. And I think, you know, if someone had doubts about like, well, if we gave up all our nuclear weapons, aren't we then just, <laughs> you know, going to be subjugated by the most powerful, you know, and if they said that right at the beginning, that makes them vulnerable to like, oh, you right. don't get it, you know? Exactly. Um, or like, that's a dumb question, right? <laughs> um, like, I can't believe you'd think that. No, right? Um, they're, not that you would respond that way, right. but they'd be afraid of you responding that way and wouldn't ask that question. But 30 minutes in, like, what do we do when we have none? And does that, you know, right. it's like, okay, I know you've, like, I've had this happen. I'm like, I know this is the question you've been <laughs> had in your head for the last half hour. <laughs> and only now do you feel okay in asking me. I think it's that way with students too. Oh, yeah. If you spend more time with them and you're not just lecturing them and they're gone when the bell rings, you get to know their family, you get to have dinner with them. Oh, that, you go further than I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you develop a relationship that lasts over the years. Yeah. And that network stays with you. That support group is there forever. I remember I had a student who's a senior at the school. He or she, I'm not going to give away anything too much here. And in, you know, we're having these conversations, advising him on his senior thesis. Her. Or her. <laughs> and... <laughs> And he or she says, can I ask you something? 
why are books important? Which is a great question, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and it was in the context of like, why do I need to cite books right. and not websites and yeah. not just anything? And like, it was a sincere question. And I was stunned for as anyone should be that a senior in college, Steve's not stunned, but I was, <laughs> you know, it's like, are, how are you this far in school and not understand the value of books? But, but it, the chance right. to explain it yeah. was great. Right. But know? also think about the equivalent of what that student was doing. They were at the moment of the rise of the printing press, basically saying, why should we memorize scripture? Yeah. yeah, we, yeah, don't, yeah we don't yeah. need to do that anymore. Yes. I wish this yes. one was that smart. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just thinking about, you know, back to sort of why we're here, is we're not just activists, we're creative activists. And I, and I think that one of the great things about sort of creative interventions is that they're often create these spaces for these deeper conversations rather than the just sort of, here's the information you know, I'm going to push it in front of you in a form of literature or canvassing. Mm -hmm. But actually, it opens up a space to have those sorts of questions and have those reflections and conversations, which, of course, also makes me a little bit queasy because just having conversations in some ways, you can yeah. have conversations about all sorts of things. Right. And part of me misses the sort of instrumentality of yeah, the yeah, activist yeah. who's right. saying, this is what you need to be thinking about. <laughs> so how do we open up spaces for conversations, but also make sure that those conversations are useful and go someplace and, you know, transform the world as opposed to just a brunch conversation, which is just sitting around for a couple of hours every week, having a good time. And that's what academics do, right? Like just sit around and talk about ideas. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Or the worst academics. Yeah. Not not us. Not yeah. present company excluded. <laughs> of course. Well, stay away from the shallow. It's really difficult. Ooh, what what do you mean by that? Anything that's inane. I mean, you listen I listen to some people and it's just like, What in the heck am I listening to this for? This is such a waste of time. You mean the subject of the conversation? Uh, the subject of the conversation is so shallow and so banal. It's like I don't <laughs> want to be part of this. So keep it Everything. on topic. Keep it on topic. How do you keep it on topic? How do you have it rise above that? Right. And I think that's basically what your question was. Yeah, it's kind of how do you actually both open up a space but also give it enough guidance and so that those reflections actually become useful and don't just retreat into brunt situations. Because I've been to a lot of conferences, the other side, which is we have no agenda and mm -hmm. we're just sitting around and talking about our feelings. And I'm like, this is cool for 45 minutes. But, <laughs> you know, I was raised in New England. We don't do this very well. Exactly. But the, we're talking about different extremes, right? So there's like one model, which is a very real thing that Steve and I have been in meetings together that's essentially turns into group therapy for everyone in attendance. And Steve and I are making eyes at each other like, I cannot believe we're here. We've got to get out of here. <laughs> it's functional in that, and it's purposeful in that all therapy is, but this is not the place. And doing that with this group of people is a waste of time. So the, they need to come up with some something that they can produce at the end of it and say, this is the great idea we came up with. Right. And instead, mm -hmm. it all turns inward. And yeah. So that that's one direction that we don't want to go. And then I think there's two others. One is a conversation about ideas that has no relevance relevance yeah or meaning in the end it doesn't have any impact on the end and then there's the purely instrumental thing that is also equally ineffective we're talking about three different sort of extremes right and for me also it is about the intentionality behind the meeting being clear about why you're pulling people together 
what it is you want to accomplish, right? And understanding the rituals and the context in which people are coming together. So again, to bring it to the brunch, right? We understand what brunch is, right? Coming into it. I feel comfortable ordering a cocktail at 10 a.m. Or two. (laughs) Or two. (laughs) (laughs) But I would not do that if we met together on a Tuesday for breakfast, Right. right, because it would have been a different context. We have a different expectation and agreements that we go into. So when we go into those meetings that are therapy meetings, when we did not agree beforehand mm-hmm. that we wanted to be in group therapy, that's when it becomes frustrating because you flipped it on us. You didn't tell us that this mm-hmm. was going to be the function of it. Mm-hmm. And you would have a different audience. There were people at church today who weren't at the brunch, right, because they they agreed to something else. They wanted a different experience. Mm-hmm. So I think being clear to people and understanding that whatever you're doing doesn't have to be the be all end all, right? It only has to be clear and specific to what you want to accomplish. And then you get people to agree upon what that is. And then it makes for a better experience for everyone. So there are meetings where I do want to just go in, let's get done. Let's make sure that we get A, B and C. Let's get it moving. I don't want to hear about what happened to your, you know, to you and your partner, right? This isn't a time for it. Boom, boom, bam. And then there are places where I want to sit longer with people and really get to know them and have that conversation. But it's for me, it's really about having that agreement going in. Why am I meeting? Why are we getting together for whatever reason? Yeah, and I mean, that's really, we're back to secular liturgy, right? Which is one of the things about how church functions, and here's brunch as a substitute for church, is that we know what's going to happen, okay? It's Lent we know what's going to happen at Lent. Okay, in the first part of service, we're going to do X. In the second part of the service, there's going to be joys and concerns. And then there's going to be a song. Stand up for the song. Now sit down for the song. And because of that, it actually structures out what our experience is in that place and in that space. And there's times when you're listening to the minister or the priest mm-hmm. or the rabbi or the mom speak. And then there's other times where you're actually joining in kind of a conversation, if you will, with people over coffee hour and so on and so forth. And it's very much structured throughout to give space and time for different types of experience, including play, like singing. Mm-hmm. I think, too, there's signals that show that this is, I, if we're using the church metaphor, right, there's decorations and there's different books that signal this is what today is. Mm-hmm. And the different decorations, different books or I'm not good at church stuff. The (laughs) things that they shove in the pews, right? Like that's a... They're called Bibles. (laughs) Right. Or hymnals. There we go. Those are there to provide you a cue of like this. And there's the cues in the performance too, right? Of like, uh, let us pray means like kneel down or something. So there's all those. At brunch, the signals are the brunch menu, the drinks coming out, right? Like, that. okay, we're not doing any serious business right now. And what are cues and signals that we can use? How do we use cues and signals? How do we show people what's expected of them? I love the example that you used before around the glasses. Ishtar and Marlies, who are two women that have taken the content of Steve and I's workshops and adapted them uh, in South Africa and retaught them. And by adapting them, we love it when this happens because people do it differently. They like think of something that we never think of. 
one of the things they did was um, they gave everyone those giant oversized sunglasses that you get in like a junk store and beads and weird hats. And then when they had them brainstorming, they wanted like, okay, anything's possible. Come up with wild ideas. If you forgot that that's what you were doing, all you had to do was look across the table and you'd see somebody wearing giant sunglasses and beads around their neck to remind you like, I don't, don't get caught up in taking this too seriously. Like try to have some fun. And so there are these, you know, visual cues. Um, and then the, another example, Steve and I have both taught classes where we required all the students to wear lab coats. And it, it does two things at once, which is imply that this is very serious research that we're doing. <laughs> and then the other is that this is not serious at all, you know. But, but more than anything, this is not a typical class. Yeah. Or this is not, a, you know, when you're wearing giant sunglasses, this is not a typical meeting or conference. Right. And to get out of the expectations that people bring that kind of get in the way. And I think the place you choose is also important. Oh, right. The surroundings. So if you take that group out and set them in a park setting where there's trees around, everything changes. Mm -hmm. Place is really important and the time of day is important. Can you talk about taking high school kids to... uh... Yeah, my husband and I both worked at the time when we were religious people working with religious groups. He worked in the East Bay of San Francisco in Oakland, in West Oakland, which is pretty much a ghetto. And I worked in the Mission District of San Francisco, which is another kind of ghetto. And we started a retreat program to pull those students out of that setting to a place about an hour and a half north in Monterio. We took them to a camp a summer camp that was not used all year long when school started. So it was empty. So we were able to use that summer camp and take students out who had never seen the forest, who lived in San Francisco and Oakland and possibly had never seen the Pacific Ocean, which is so close. So we would drive them all the way down the Russian River to Jenner, where they could see the Russian River and meet the ocean and walk in that water So moving them out of that place, out of the ghetto, into a different surrounding, opened up a whole new world for Mm -hmm. them. And we did do the free time thing. Mm -hmm. So we would have gatherings in the evening on Friday when we arrived and Saturday morning. And then we would cut them loose right after lunch. Say you have to be back by 5 o'clock. So that time was think time that we talked about. So what do you do in that time? And then we'd come back together in the evening where... We would pull all those thoughts together. So that's what I was saying earlier. When you have that that empty time, it should produce something. And you need to evaluate that. Mm. So that evening time became our evaluation. So Mm. that's a little bit of what we did um, with a whole group of, let's say, 20 students, 10 from each school, and five or six faculty members. So the empty time without the reflection is just goofing off. It doesn't. Well, the goofing off it should produce something, you know. Yeah. I mean, they've got to come back with something. You it's know. framed in a way. or It's, it's framed you know. in a way. Yeah. Right. And that framing is key, right? Especially when we're asking people to do something that's outside of their experience. 
Um, what I love about all the examples from the taking the kids to the Pacific Ocean, to the glasses, to the lab coats, it's it's all signaling, right? And that's what our little human brains need. It's those signals. We need to be thinking about that as activists and people who are constructing gatherings or coming together of people is that we are constantly signaling to people what we expect of them and what we want to get out of them. And I don't think we take that seriously enough in our planning, right? There are too many meetings where people don't even think about how to arrange chairs, right? Um, And that that impacts the level of conversation and the level of power that will sit Mm -hmm. in a room, right? So we're constantly signaling to people, but we don't acknowledge as activists what we're signaling or even thinking about that clearly. What is it that I want to be signaling? Okay, so there's obviously a lot more that we could say about this. We've hit on two key areas. One is like that the longer period of time that you spend um, creates a different kind of interaction, which sometimes can be useful. There's some risks in that. And then also thinking about the liturgy, liturgy, which I know how to spell now. Liturgical. Liturgical. (laughs) What's the word after that? Liturgical nature. I'm trying to sound smart. Uh, Anyway, the the script that you use uh, and think about the experience, which is like a often a theme that we talk about is like what is the experience of the audience what is the experience of the participants Well, because as artists that's what we try to think about we try to think about the experiences of our audiences and all the cues we'd be using in order to have a certain how, how do we want to move them and that's something we have to think about as activists as well so we're we don't need to go into everything because part of the reason we do this is to prompt you as a listener to do this yourself you can go to brunch and you can think about these things. And maybe write it off on your taxes. <laughs> maybe. Talk to your accountant. <laughs> but your job as an activist, your homework, is to go out and do things that are popular and figure out what's valuable about them and then what we can use in the kind of work that we do. Before we go, I wanted to ask you guys, because it's been a long time, what some new pop culture kind of experience or some guilty pleasure that you have that you want to share or recommend So for me, and again, I'm never guilty about pop culture, but (laughs) I am getting ready to go see the movie The Man Who Invented Christmas. So I'm watching all different permeations of Charles Dickens' story, including watching, I just watched the other day, the Odd Couple's version of A Christmas Story. The odd <laughs> I didn't even know that existed. It's on Hulu. Everything is... So I watched uh, Scrooge, a colorized version of Scrooge from the 60s, and watched the Odd Couple's version of Scrooge. And I will watch a few more before I go see the movie about Charles Dickens writing A Christmas Story. Christmas Carol. Christmas, Christmas Story Carol. Is something else. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. You'll shoot your eye out. That's true. Christmas. I always call it the Christmas story. But yes, it's a Christmas Carol or Scrooge. But yes, I'm really excited about seeing that. So catching up on all the different versions that has existed. What are you hoping to learn? What I love about that story is that it's been 
told over and over. It's ritualistic. I love uh-huh. rituals. Okay, okay. Um, I always look for that. And it never gets old, at least for me. I, I love the story. And I love the sense of redemption, the sense of you can be really devoid of humanity and compassion. And that doesn't mean that it's over for you. That you can always, that that always sits within us in some place and it can be touched at any point. I wonder if anyone is making that story with Donald Trump as Scrooge right now. Or if he is beyond redemption. (laughs) (laughs) I, yes. So for me, I don't believe anyone is beyond redemption. I think redemption is something that you have to actively choose. So whether or not you. That might be the problem. Right. (laughs) Whether or not you actively choose it is on you. Yeah. Um, but even right in Scrooge needed a big push, right? It wasn't the first ghost or even the second ghost, but it was all three ghosts that he <laughs> needed to experience in order to come to that realization. But yes, it is on you to actively uh, seek redemption. Man, I don't want to follow that one. <laughs> Ramen. Ra- like the, the soup. Like, like soup, yeah. Um, so me and my youngest son... Every single week, um, usually on Sunday after church, we go to a different ramen place. You know, this is a luxury of living in New York City, of course, um, but there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ramen places, and they're all slightly different. So those of listeners who aren't in New York City, this is what you have to look forward to in about three or four years. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Sooner or later. All the, all the pokey places are making their way <laughs> to Seattle, I notice. Exactly. Yeah. Soon you'll just be beset by the millions of ramen shops. And each one, of course, is slightly different. And we talk about the noodle consistency. And we talk about whether the tea-boiled eggs are good. And and it's it's just a great experience. And it is a ritual. It's a liturgy. I mean, literally, this is what we do together, is we go have ramen all right i love that what do you got mom um i was thinking about noticing as i left california that right after halloween all the christmas decorations went up and there's a guy down the street from us who has his house so lit up that you can hardly see the house (laughs) (laughs) i mean there are strands of christmas lights hanging over the front porch that you have to kind of pull aside like a curtain to get to the front door. Wow. There's nothing that's not lit. And I was wondering as I looked at all this, the rest of us don't need to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> He's done it for the whole street. <laughs> but we do have a ritual in our house where we put the tree up. And I thought, you know, my kids have moved out. My husband's not, he passed away. So maybe I don't even need to put the tree up this year. But then I put the tree up, pulled out the decorations. <laughs> it's that ritual that we, you know, here's the season. We don't want to pass it up without acknowledging. There's something about giving. There's something about sharing. And there's something about birth, you know, and what is it that's being born in us. Mm-hmm. So That's good. That's yeah. mine. Yeah. For me, I've been watching for the last, you know, year or two a show called The Good Place. <gasps> I love that show. Yeah. And so The Good Place, I would recommend it watch from the first episode because it does a really good job of explaining the premise of the show. It is a popular show. There's probably a lot of people like, oh, yeah, I've totally seen that. But um, You mean I've totally seen that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why is he talking about this? Of course. It is both popular and I think somewhat critically acclaimed. 
the in the first episode, uh, this woman uh, has passed away and arrives in the afterlife, and it goes from there. It's, I don't want to give it too too much yeah. of a way, but um, it's a sitcom, and it deals with all these like really kind of what would normally be pretty heavy philosophical issues and even explains them but all with like a lot of jokes and story which uh i find very admirable and want to steal from all right so we're gonna wrap up um thank you for listening if you can't get enough of this there are 10 other episodes uh going back you can you know find that where you get podcasts there's also notes for this show probably in your podcast player so things that we've talked about like the meaning of the word liturgy uh there'll be a link to, to <laughs> merriam webster's online where you can read more about that um, and uh, mimosa recipes yes of course and our our recommendations at the end you can link to those in the show notes um we also have at this point a series of a 17 webinars um pat has been a part of them before mm-hmm. and if you uh want to learn more about different topics uh we have guests or Steve and I have hosted them and talk about things that we've really have only included in our workshops in the past and we're trying to make them available online and that's available at the Center for Artistic Activism website which is at artisticactivism.org one of the ways that we're able to keep doing this is because of a volunteer a listener named David Hart thank you David thanks David who is helping us edit these um, so that we can get it done here she says i've been watching donald trump for the last you know year or two and donald trump has passed away and this is what you have to look forward to in about three or four years you can go to brunch and you can think about these things and last thing it's at the end of the year even if it's not when you're listening to this if you want to make a tax deductible donation that allows us to do these programs you can do that at artisticactivism.org donate right now I don't know how long this offer will go, at least till the end of the year. We'll see. But if you make a uh, like a subscriber donation, meaning you give us uh, $10 or more a month and sign up for that, we will make a brick with your name on it that will go into the new Center for Artistic Activism headquarters. And I also need to say that we do not have a headquarters and we have no plans to build a headquarters. But if we ever do... Your brick will be prominently featured in the building. And in the meantime, it will be in Steve's backyard. Yeah, there's a wooded area in my backyard. They'll be neatly stacked in the wooded area in my backyard until that happens. All right. Till next time. Thank you. Thanks for showing up. Thank you, all. Bye. And thank you, Rita, for being here. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Rita. (laughs)